0: Everyone who's in this room this morning is here, not by accident, but rather by God's purpose, that God has drawn you into this place. And so it may be that God has a person for you to talk to. It may be that God has a song for you to sing. It may be that God has a piece of scripture for you to hear. I don't know what his purpose is, but it's my desire uh, that you wouldn't be able to leave this place today without having had an encounter with the living God, the author of all reality. Now, we are in week five of a sermon series and the sermon series is called The Seven Desires, okay? The sermon series is called The Seven Desires. It's based on a book uh, by Mark and Debbie Laser, who are two psychologists and counselors. And essentially what their book argues is that, you know, after X number of years of counseling, they've been able to sort of break down people's core desires into these seven areas. By the way, these are core relational desires. So these are relational desires. And, uh, and essentially, there are seven. We've done four so far. Uh, the first was to be heard and understood. Uh, the second was to be affirmed. In other words, that's to be verbally recognized for what you've done. Uh, the third is to be blessed. In other words, to be loved and to be, and to be uh, also verbally um, uh, basically affirmed for who you are. So affirmed is for what you do. Blessed is for who you are. And then last week, Bob talked about this other core desire that we have, which is to be safe, right? Who can argue with any of those? Now, uh, the fifth desire that we're going to talk about today, I'm going to get to in just a moment. But let me go back to the book for a moment. And essentially what Mark and Debbie Laser argue is that, you, for the most part, these needs or these desires that we have, these seven core desires, in our childhood are, um, are either met and fulfilled, right, or maybe they're unfulfilled. And maybe worse yet, maybe at times uh, we're not only unfulfilled in one of these areas, but maybe, maybe we're wounded in one of these areas, right? You can think of examples uh, where people aren't safe in their childhoods. And so it's an area, a desire, that wasn't not, it was not only not met, but they were wounded in that area. And essentially what they also argue is that each of these desires comes from being really created in God's image, right? Because God is a relational God, we are relational people. And so today we're going to jump into the fifth desire, but before we do that, I'm going to take one moment and I'm going to open us up in prayer. Father, thank you very much again for each of the people that are in this room. Um, Father, what you have in store for them, I do not know, but I do know that uh, we can pray that your spirit would be um, in this room and that he would be upon us and among us. And so Father, I would ask that your Holy Spirit would be here and, uh, and that you would not allow us to leave this room this morning without having had an encounter with you the living God. Father, I pray all these things now in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.
1: Something very special happened inside the neonatal intensive care unit at this hospital in Worcester, Massachusetts. October 17th, 1995, twin girls were born here, 12 weeks premature. When you see little girls with their dolls, one of the tiny dolls Imagine that maybe just a little bit smaller each weighing only about two pounds. This is the twins' father, Paul Jackson. The nurses in the NICU were, were they're very honest, and they say they told me up front that things look pretty good now, but to be honest with you that in the next 48 to seventy two hours, they said things can turn very quickly and turn it did. When they were only three weeks old, one of the twins was struggling to breathe. Her heart rate was soaring, her oxygen level dropping quickly, and she was turning blue. Not only was she having the spells, but they were severe. A nurse had the novel idea of taking the stronger twin and putting her in the same incubator as her sister, a procedure that at the time had never been done before in the U.S. It was one of those things that was it happened very quickly, and they really couldn't move that much, but there was a little bit of a squirm, and the arm kind of just went up. The healthier sister, tiny Kyrie Jackson, put her arm around her sister Brielle. Her breathing and vital signs instantly stabilized. The image captured by a newspaper photographer who happened to be at the hospital. This heartwarming picture dubbed the rescuing hug, was seen in newspapers around the world in Life magazine and Reader's Digest, it highlighted the amazing healing power of touch.
0: All right, some of you maybe have heard that story before, maybe not. Um, and you might hear it and you might be like, That's come on, please, like that is just Reader's Digest stuff, that's not real. Uh, What was interesting, I don't know if you noticed during the clip, but um, the lady who was speaking um, on the Wolf Blitzer basically said, you know, that it's the first time it had been done in America that was recorded, at least by a hospital, but the same process had been being used over in Europe already for years. And uh, they didn't exactly understand all of the connections, but what they did understand is that physical touch actually helps babies thrive, and especially struggling babies. And so this practice of putting uh, twins, basically, or sometimes triplets or more, inside of the same uh, incubator in order for them to experience physical touch actually yields these results of help- helping these children thrive. It's fantastic, really very interesting, right? Now, now, here's what's interesting. What we know about studies on touch, that's the fifth desire, is the desire to be, to be touched, safe and healthy touch. Part of what we know is that touch is vitally important for our development, as human beings. It's vitally important, safe and healthy touch. Studies in orphanages over the years show that when babies don't get enough physical touch, they have lower levels of growth hormone. And so sometimes you hear stories of people who um, adopt children from you know, other parts of the world, and it's a child that's two years old, but, but looks more like it's nine months old. It's because they, in these or- certain orphanages, haven't experienced enough human touch, and so their bodies haven't produced uh, enough levels of growth hormone. They can actually quit growing and at times can even die. Not only do they have lower levels of growth hormone, but they also have lower levels of the chemicals that strengthen the immune system and brain development. And so it's amazing, but human touch actually promotes higher levels of growth hormone, better immune systems, and amazing brain development all through human touch. That's pretty remarkable these same infants from orphanages have much lower levels of oxytocin and vasopressin. These are two chemicals which actually um, help in all sorts of ways. They they usually are linked with bonding, but they also are linked with uh, fighting against negative consequences. They help in terms of fighting against depression or stress or anxiety. And so what's interesting is not only do these infants uh, display lower levels of oxytocin and vasopressin, But actually, through the rest of their lives, they experience lower levels of these chemicals as well. Now, what's interesting is adults, uh, we, again, those of us who maybe were not touched appropriately in safe and healthy ways, or or maybe people that grew up in these contexts, when they're adults, they actually have some following symptoms, which I'm going to read. One of the things that happens in the lives of people who, again, were maybe touched in an unsafe or unhealthy way or not touched enough Uh, one of the things that they display is they actually withdraw or uncomfortable with physical touch. Now, some people just don't like to be touched because when your wife rubs your legs at night, it just tickles. That's not what I'm talking about here. But I'm actually talking about people who are uncomfortable with physical touch because touch, this core desire for them, was either an area in which they were unfulfilled or maybe it was an area that they were wounded in. Uh, Not only that, but they have a lot of times people that um, aren't fulfilled in this area or wounded in this area, they have a confusion in their desire for physical touch or they have indiscriminate physical touch. And I'm not going to unpack what that means, but you can guess what it means. Um, Not only that, but a lot of times these people who've been wounded or unfulfilled have difficulty with the relational attachment to significant others. And they even go so far as to push people away or maybe even intentionally destroy the relationship at times it can lead to a pattern of broken relationships throughout their life. All this is attached to this idea of touch. People who, again, were wounded or unfulfilled in this area, particularly in childhood, um, struggle with their emotions and emotional imbalance. They have an inability uh, to rebound from discouragement or misfortune when things don't go their way. They have a, they have a more difficult time self-regulating. Many people who, uh, again, were wounded or unfulfilled in this area um, have a lifelong mistrust or distrust of other people. There's a TED Talk by a guy named Dr. Zach uh, who gave a speak, speech on oxytocin, and he basically called oxytocin the trust chemical. And basically, he went through a, a long series of tests where he sought to sort of find out what is it that causes us to trust people? What is it that causes morality, essentially, was part of his other question. And in this TED Talk, he said, it's, it's human touch. It's when we have the touch of other human beings in a safe and in a healthy way and in a healthy vi- environment that we appropriately learn to trust others. And then finally, people who are wounded in this area or unfulfilled have a predisposition to emotional disturbance or, uh, or they simply create conflict uh, as a result of not being touched or being touched in unhealthy ways, right? And so here's the deal. It's very, very important. This idea, this desire of human touch is hardwired into us as human beings. And if we display some of these coping mechanisms or some of these symptoms, and what I've been saying over and over again throughout the sermon series is if you display some of those symptoms, you need to understand that those very coping mechanisms, those very symptoms that you have, ultimately are going to push away the very people that you desire to be close to. If you're in this room this morning and you know someone who maybe demonstrates some of these symptoms, part of what you can do is you can look at them and hopefully be sympathetic. And you can look at them and say, I bet that their um, coping mechanism or one of these symptoms in their lives it's actually the result of a wound, a relational wound that happened in their hearts. And so hopefully what it can cause you to do is to be more empathetic and more patient with some people that you love that maybe demonstrate these very same things. Now, it's clear throughout scripture. It's clear throughout psychology. It's clear throughout the medical community that we have a need for safe and healthy touch and that it is, again, hardwired into us as human beings, right? And now the bigger question is, we're doing a sermon series on this. So what does the Bible have to say about it? And uh, the answer, thankfully, is in some respects more than I realized. The Bible has much to say about our desire for safe and healthy touch. First of all, the Bible speaks of two kinds of touch. It talks about what we'll call intimate touch, and we'll talk about platonic touch. That's all. Actually, we're just going to focus on the second one today, the idea of platonic touch. And essentially, it's this. The Bible speaks of touch in relation to bestowing blessing, encouragement, and strength. It also speaks of touch, communicating acceptance and forgiveness. And then finally, in the Bible, we see healing associated with touch. First thing, let's uh, take a look and see how the Bible speaks of touch in relationship to bestowing blessing. blessing. Luke 18. Luke 18 is this interesting story. Uh, Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem, right? It's Luke 18, so you kind of know it's toward the end of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, he left um, the Sea of Galilee, and made this long march down along uh, basically the river past Jericho. And he's heading into Jerusalem. He's in a town. And when he's in this town, these uh, people begin bringing their babies to him, right? He's on the way to Jerusalem where he's going to go to the cross. He knows this. And not only does he know it, but he's worried. He's concerned. He is uh, to some degree anxious. But listen to what happens in verse 15. It says this. Now they, these parents, were bringing even infants, babies, to him, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. I don't think they were being mean. I don't think they were being jerky. I think they were saying, look, I don't know what's going on with Jesus right now, but he's, a, he's under a little bit of stress. And so if you guys could simply step back a little bit, this is not the time or the place. But then verse 16 says, but Jesus called them, meaning the parents with these children to him saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Now, interestingly enough, in the Old Testament, we see that blessing is often associated with touch, whether that's Jacob and Esau or Abraham or Isaac over and over again. There's this idea of physically touching and blessing someone. Now, what's interesting here in this particular story, it's not so interesting that parents would want to have their children touched by Jesus, right? Like, we, we're we kind of familiar with that kind of stuff happening. Like, people want to give their babies to Obama so he can kiss them, that kind of thing, or whatever the case may be. You know, or sometimes people go somewhere where there's a Dorito that looks like Mother Teresa, and they want to touch this. Like, we can understand the human element, you know, of like a good luck charm kind of thing. So we can assume or kind of understand why a parent would do that. Um, but what's interesting about this story, right, is that Jesus doesn't dismiss the desire of these parents to have him touch them and bless them. And instead, what he does is he actually ascribes value and worth to this process of him taking a baby on his lap and putting his hand on that baby and then blessing that baby and praying for that child. Does that make sense? Like, it's a little bit interesting because Jesus could have very easily said, come on, guys, like, that's ridiculous. But that's not what he said at all. Apparently, what Jesus understood is there is some value, some worth, some connection to physically touching these babies, these children, and to blessing them. Let me give you an example. So, I went to India. I don't know, ten years ago. And when I was in India, one of my the people that I ran into there was a man named Nitin Sadar. And I told you the story of Nitin and how he would take um, members of his church and they would go into the largest slum there in India and they would set up chairs and they would wash the feet of the untouchables. And it was just this really, you know, powerful picture of loving people with the gospel. And he's an amazingly, you know, humble man. Um, And one of the things that I experienced when I was in India as part of Indian Christianity is, like in American Christianity, we type somebody an email and say, hey, heard you were suffering, I'll pray for you. Send, you know what I mean? Or text you, praying for you, LOL or something, or smiley face, I don't know. All right, that's how American Christianity works. In Indian Christianity, part of what I experienced over there that was really wonderful and kind of earth shattering is that, that, you know, people would ask you to pray for them. Like they knew that I was a pastor and they'd say, would you pray for me? And, I, and, and they would want me to lay my hands on them and pray for them. And not only that, but there were other uh, pastors and other, you know, religious figures there. And they would always lay their hands on you when they prayed for you. And Nitten was one of these people who was constantly laying his hands on your shoulders or on your arm and praying for you. And it was just moving. Like it was really interesting because I'm so Western. I'm not particularly touchy. And to have another person lay their hand upon me, bless me, and pray for me was moving. So about three years ago, Nitton came to Atlanta. Uh, Perimeter brought him in for some things. And uh, they had a dinner at one of the homes. So I drove from uh, in Rome over to Atlanta simply because I wanted to get a chance to see Nitten. Got there, had dinner together, hung out, talked about old times, um, and then on my way out, Nitin walked me to the door. The rest of the people were still in the dining room and they were talking and sort of, you know, having fun. And as we got ready to walk up the door, I said, hey, Nitin, would you pray for me really quickly? And it was really cool because here's Nitin, this you know, this Indian man, probably about 50, 55 years old, just put both his hands on me and began to, to pray for me. And, and essentially what I was asking him to do is, I, I know that your blessing, because of Nitin, Siddhar, has no, no power necessarily in and of itself, but I know that you can be a conduit for God as you lay your hands upon me and pray for me. And it did so, and it was just moving, right? Does that make sense? And so, again, the picture here is of Jesus saying, my touch, because I'm the Savior of the world, my touch, because I'm the creator of the universe, my touch has power in the lives of these little children, and I'm going to bless them. And so what do we do with this? I guess what I would say in this desire for human touch is I would say we have the opportunity to do this very same thing with one another. We get to be Indian Christians. And so what I would invite you to do is I would invite you to go into your children's room at night if you have children, and I would invite you not simply to stand away from them, but to lay your hand upon them and to pray for them and to bless them. You know, I would encourage you as members of Seven Hills Fellowship when you're around other people um, to take the opportunity to pray for them and not simply to text it to them, but rather to put your hand upon their shoulder and to pray for them and to bless them. I think there's something powerful and I think there's something mysterious in this idea of touch and this idea of blessing. The Bible speaks about it. The Bible speaks of touch in relationship to bestowing blessing, but it also talks about touch in relationship to bestowing encouragement and strength. Listen to Daniel 10. Obviously this is from the Old Testament, but Daniel has this experience with one like a son of man. Listen to the passage from Daniel 10 and behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, "O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright for now I have been sent to you. When he had spoken to me, according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute and behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Now we, we know that Jesus referred to himself in the new Testament as what the son of man. And so essentially what we think here is that this was a pre-incarnate revelation of Christ and that in this, Jesus touched Daniel. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, "O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, I'm hurting, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me and no breath is left in me again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me, Right? Now again, part of what we see again in the Old Testament and the New Testament is we see that when Elijah is fleeing from Jezebel, that the angel of the Lord, also a pre-incarnate Christ, touches him, touches Elijah, gives him food, and strengthens him. In the New Testament, we see that uh, when they're on the Mount of Transfiguration, that Peter, James, and John are undone when God the Father proclaims, this is my son, right? Listen to him. And it says that Jesus... In their, in their fear that Jesus reaches to them on the ground and touches them and strengthens them. Does that make sense? Again, there's something tied to this idea of physical touch and bestowing strength and bestowing encouragement from Daniel, from Elijah, from the story of Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. And the thing is, we understand it from human life as well, right? We understand that human touch bestows encouragement and actually bestows strength, right? One, one of... Um, my favorite movie that I can't ever recommend to people because there's lots of bad language in it is um, called Goodwill Hunting. We're going to put up the sign really quickly here, but uh, essentially, Goodwill Hunting is the story of Matt Damon on the left and Robin Williams on the right. Matt Damon is a boy uh, who's a genius, just so happens to be a genius, but uh, he grew up in a difficult background and has um, struggles with some psychological issues. Uh, Robin Williams, on the other hand, is a very blue-collar psychologist. And essentially, Matt Damon goes through this list of sort of bourgeois uh, counselors and psychologists and psychiatrists, all of whom eventually sort of reject him because he's such a pain. But Robin Williams sticks with him through thick and through thin, through thick and through thin, and begins to make some traction, begins to make some headway, begins to give Will the ability to, uh, to overcome some of the problems in his life. And there's this wonderful turning point. In the movie, some of you have seen it before, but they're standing in Robin Williams' office, and Robin Williams looks at Will, and he says, "Will, it's not your fault." And uh, Will goes, "Yeah, yeah, I know." And uh, and Robin Williams says, "Will, it's not your fault." And Will goes, "Yeah, I know." And then Robin Williams, the counselor again, says, "Will, it's not your fault." And uh, Will starts to back up a little bit and gets this awkward look on his face. He's like, "I know." And then about two more times, he says, "Will, it's not your fault." And then uh, Will begins to become emotional and begins to cry. And Robin Williams reaches out and he gives him a huge hug. And they stand there in this embrace in the movie. And Will is utterly and completely undone by this human touch, by this safe, healthy human touch, by this older man. And it's a turning point in the movie whereby Will is given strength to then make these appropriate changes in his life. Does that make sense? We understand that. Like we've experienced that. Our children have experienced it from us before. When they're fearful and you're walking them into five-year-old kindergarten, they reach out and grab your hand, right? At night, when they're frightened and they need some strength, they say, hey, mommy, will you sit by my bed and uh, hold my hand until I fall asleep? Not that I ever did that, but I've heard it happened a few times to people, right? What's interesting is in psychology today, there's an article uh, by a, a psychologist whose last name is Chillett, I think, or Chio, I don't know. But essentially, the, uh, the article says this, or the quote says this, if there's a most appropriate time to communicate via touch, it's probably when someone needs consoling or when somebody needs strength or when somebody needs to be encouraged. Research shows that touch is the best way to comfort. We kind of know that intuitively, don't we? Uh, if you ask people how they'd comfort someone in a given situation, they tend to list pats, hugs, and different kinds of touch behaviors more than anything else. Even opposite-sex friends, for example, who usually don't touch a lot so they won't send the wrong signals, won't worry about being misinterpreted, she says. Maybe that's because there are times during intense grief or fear but also in ecstatic moments of joy and love when only the language of touch can fully express what we feel. Does that make sense? So again, we, we know there's this core desire to be touched appropriately, safely touched. And we know that in giving this safe and appropriate touch, not only to our children, but also to friends, people who are grieving, people who need encouragement, people who need strength, that it's by human touch that we can have the opportunity to strengthen them. And so what do we do with that as human beings at Seven Hills Fellowship? I think what I would argue is that you have the opportunity to bestow strength upon people in safe and healthy Ways I would argue that we should be a relatively touchy church. In light of that, I want everybody to stand up and give each other hugs. Just kidding. Anyway, figure out how to apply that yourself, but use that touch to encourage, use that touch to strengthen. Okay? So, the Bible speaks of touch in a relationship to bestowing blessing, to bestowing encouragement and strength, but it also speaks of touch communicating acceptance and forgiveness. Luke chapter 15 is a well known passage of Scripture, it's the story of the prodigal son. Essentially, it should be called the prodigal sons because basically it's about two brothers, an older and a younger. And essentially what Jesus is doing is he's telling this story in order to communicate that both sons are pretty broken, right? And essentially what, what's wrong with bro- both sons is that both sons want their dad's stuff. They want their inheritance, but they don't actually want their dad. And so the older brother is basically being obedient and sort of playing by the rules in order to get his dad's stuff. Right. But the younger brother basically goes straight to the dad and says, hey, dad, I want you to go ahead and give me my inheritance. Now I'm going to hit the road and I'm going to go live life the way I want to um, and essentially communicate. I don't care anything about you. Right. So the younger brother goes far away. And according to the older brother blows his money in wild living and with prostitutes and with mayhem and et cetera, et cetera. And at some point, the younger brother has run out of money. His life is completely shot. It's utterly and completely messed up. And he's actually working for a guy who's a pig farmer. And he's feeding the pigs food. He's so hungry, he begins to eat the food himself. And he's like, what am I doing? I'm going home. And not only am I going home, but he says, I'm going to go home. And I'm going to make a deal with my dad where I say, hey, I'll work and try to pay you back for everything. And so the boy begins to make his way home. Here's where we join verse 20. Verse 20 says this, and he, this boy, arose out of the pig slop. And he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now, let me call time out here for a second. Jesus, what he's doing here to the older brother, the Pharisees, the younger brother, all the sinners, what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, I don't know what you think my heavenly father is like, but I'm going to paint a picture for you of who God the father is is and let this sink in a little bit my father the god who you don't know but who i represent because i'm his son this father desires so much to have a relationship with you that he will run to you and that when he runs to you that he will embrace you and kiss you right and then verse 21 says and the son said to him father i've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Okay, dot, dot, dot. What, what the younger son is trying to do there is he's basically trying to say, let me dictate sort of the, um, the way that this is going to go. Let me sort of throw out the way in which I can earn your affection again. Let me sort of set the parameters for how our relationship can be right again, right? But the father's already hugging him. The father's already kissing him. The father's already run to him, Right? In other words, the relationship's already been restored. And then here is how the father responds. He says, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate for this. This my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. In other words, what the father does is say, you don't get to set the parameters for forgiveness and acceptance my arms are around you, I'm kissing you, you're back, we're okay, right? I love you. And what the father's embrace communicates is that I have forgiven you and I love you. One of my favorite statues on the planet is uh, called the the Statue of the Prodigal Son. It's actually, of all places, in Chattanooga, Tennessee. It's in the Art Garden, uh, which is um, not too far from the Hunter Art Museum there. And you can see this great picture here. It's done by a Polish sculptor, I think, back in 74 or something. But essentially, you can see the father there on the right, and you can see the son. And in a better picture, which we don't have, what you can't see is that the son is essentially naked, and he looks exhausted, and he looks worn. And the father um, looks stately and muscular and strong. And in this picture, the father has wrapped his arms around... His um, son, who's decaying and decrepit and weak, exhausted, falling apart and in the strength. The father's embrace is holding the son to himself. And the son's face is just buried in his father's chest. Great picture. And uh, again, what Jesus has done is Jesus has said, I don't know what you think God the father is like, but God the father is like this father who longs to embrace you and crush you in his bosom, not in anger, but rather in love and in acceptance. And that's what's being communicated in this not only wonderful sculpture, but also in the story of the prodigal sons, right? And so again, what do we do with that as Christians? What do we do with that as believers? One of the things that's interesting is uh, in the book of Matthew, Jesus essentially gives the disciples... He gives them the power of receiving people into the church. He gives them the power of saying, uh, "You're forgiven, right? You're loved. You're accepted." That's that's the power that Jesus gives to the disciples. And and there's a sense in which that's doing what that's doing is it's affirming the gospel in people's life. It's communicating the gospel in people's life. And so, what I guess I would say is that maybe we get to be prodigal fathers to people around us who need to be encouraged, who need to be strengthened who need to be communicated to that God loves you, that he accepts you, that you've been forgiven. And maybe the best way to do that is in the same way that the prodigal father does to the prodigal son. And then maybe that's to throw our arms around people and to touch them and to embrace them and to remind them they are accepted and they are forgiven, not because of their goodness or lack of badness, but rather because they trust in Jesus alone uh, to be their savior. Right? So, Again, this whole idea of the power and the desire of touch. Okay? The Bible speaks of touch in relation to bestowing blessing, encouragement, and strength. It also speaks of touch communicating acceptance and forgiveness. But finally, in the Bible, we see healing associated with touch. Now, here's another great story that many of you have heard before and some of you haven't. Uh, essentially, um, this is Jesus' first uh, miracle, at least as it's recorded in the book of Luke at least after he's called the disciples. And so Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, is when Jesus goes around the Sea of Galilee, and he calls these uh, men to be fishers of men. He calls them to be disciples. And uh, they drop their nets, and they leave their families, and they leave their friends, they leave their professions. They follow Jesus. And as they're on their way to following Jesus, this brand new life with him, it says this happens in verse 12. It says, while Jesus was in one of the towns, again followed by his new disciples, A man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Now just picture this for a minute, okay? Because it's helpful to actually see it. The new disciples are following Jesus. They're in the middle of a town, right? And in the middle of the town, this man came along who's a leper. And, uh, and it's interesting because some of you know this, some of you don't, but the, the, the life of a leper is not a particularly good one. They didn't have a cure for leprosy back then, and so lepers lived outside, uh, sort of outside of the city gates. They lived in leper colonies, right? And when they did come into cities, they would have to actually walk on the other side of the street from regular people And when they were near other people, they would have to shout, unclean, unclean, unclean. So it was this constant reminder of their uncleanliness. And not only that, but it was a constant reminder of their brokenness and their separation from family and friends, right? And what's interesting in this story, this man who came along who had leprosy, it doesn't say that he had a little bit of leprosy on his elbow and that every now and then his mom would get up in the morning and she would put a little bit of salve on his little elbow leprosy and make it feel better. It said that he was covered with leprosy right and luke's a doctor and so it's interesting that luke the doctor says this guy's covered with leprosy and so this guy is completely covered with leprosy which probably means he's had it for a long time which probably means for a long time he's been sleeping outside the city gates which probably means for a long time he's been separated from his family and friends which probably means it's been a long time that he's been walking those streets yelling unclean 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 and it's probably been a long time since someone has just touched him And as I've read this story over and over again and preached on it numerous times, one of the things that's always stood out to me is that Jesus could have just snapped his fingers, pointed and said, you're good, you know? Or Jesus could have prayed over him. But Luke goes out of his way to say that Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. And I love giving this talk when I'm in other settings because I love to walk over to people and put my hand on their shoulder and physically touch them when I read that passage. Because I think that something was being communicated there by Jesus to that man other than I'm about to heal you. I think part of what Jesus was doing there is he was saying, I know you haven't been touched in ages, but I'm gonna reach out and I'm gonna put my hand upon you and I'm going to touch you, right? And again, just imagine it. It might've been 10 or 15 years since that guy had been touched, since he had felt the touch of a normal person, much less this guy who uh, is going to be the Messiah. And it says that immediately he becomes clean. And in that moment, what Jesus is doing is he is becoming spiritually unclean, right? Because that's what happens when you touch someone with leprosy. And Jesus basically says, this is what it looks like for me to heal you, is that I take your sickness upon me. I become spiritually unclean, physically unclean in order to make you clean. In 1999, there's a good movie, uh, which I think I can recommend probably. It's called uh, The Green Mile, came out in 1999. Tom Hanks, and then I believe it's Michael Clark Duncan, who's the large man on the right there. But it's this very interesting story. I believe it's set during the Depression. And uh, it's um, actually—Tom Hanks in the movie is a uh, a prison guard, and Michael Clark Duncan has been wrongfully imprisoned in um, this prison. And uh, while he is in there, what they discover is that Michael Clark Duncan has the ability to not only detect when someone is sick, but also to heal them of their sickness— and so there's uh, actually four different scenes in the movie, healing scenes, where Michael Clark Duncan, this this large man on the right, has to actually reach out. And so uh, Tom Hanks has a, a particular type of infection, and uh, as he is um, walking towards the cell, Michael Clark Duncan, the character, grabs him and places his hand upon him, and in doing so, heals Tom Hanks, but he takes the sickness into himself. And then there's three other scenes, the last of which is that the uh, warden's wife has cancer, and they sneak Michael Clark Duncan out late at night, and they sneak him into the warden's house, and he walks over to the bed where the warden's wife is close to death, dying of cancer. And again, he touches her, and he pulls the sickness out of her, but he takes it into himself, right? And, And essentially what's being pictured there is not just, say, this kind of cool movie and this idea of healing, But that's a picture of Jesus, right? It's a picture of Jesus reaching out to the man with leprosy. It's a picture of Jesus going to the man who's born blind and putting his hands on his eyes. It's a picture of Jesus reaching out to the person who's deaf and putting his hand on his ears. It's a picture of Jesus reaching out and putting his hand upon the little girl who is dead and rising her from the dead, but taking that sickness and that brokenness and all of that sin in himself and dying in our place On the cross and at that moment what jesus is communicating is i'm willing to give it all up in order to make you clean in order to touch you and not only am i willing to make you clean not only am i willing to touch you but i'm actually able to make you clean right now here's sort of the interesting thing about all of this is uh that's all interesting stuff right blessing encouragement strength all these things are very interesting but if you're anything like me you're kind of left going yeah but god's in heaven right and yes maybe i've got a wife maybe i've got some friends i've got children but what about me what about what about god actually touching me what about him reaching out to me and the only thing i can say is i think there are two ways in which jesus is the answer to this desire that we have i think one of those ways is found in first corinthians where we're told that our bodies are now the temple of the holy spirit and it's jesus holy spirit and i don't know you know, again, what you've experienced in your life. But when you feel the Spirit, you don't simply know that the Spirit is working in you, but oftentimes it's associated with real, tangible feeling that God is within you, that, His, that your body is His temple. And not only that, but I also have often wondered why is it that Jesus kept His human body? You know, I know why He had to have a human body, I know He came to earth and had to become a human being in order to, to sort of live as our representative. and uh, and to obey where we couldn't obey, and to remain faithful, we couldn't remain faithful. And I understood that he had to die physically and then rise again physically, but why did he have to keep that physical body? And the Bible doesn't actually tell us, but I think one of the things that I'm looking forward to, and one of the things that I hope and expect um, on the new heavens and the new earth, is that my older brother Jesus, in a very masculine and strong way, will be able to come up to me and put his hand upon me, and to say, well done, good and faithful servant, and to say, I love you, and for him to hold me and hug me and to grab me as my older brother and as he would do a little brother. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you um, for your word, and I thank you for uh, the way that your word is a light that shines into uh, the darkest recesses of our minds uh, and our hearts and uh, even our physiology. Father, I pray that um, that we would um, use touch safely and healthily with our children, with our friends, with our wives, with our husbands, with our parents, uh, with other people that we have the opportunity to bestow blessing and strength and encouragement upon. And Father, for those of us... Um, who, uh, who need to know you are with us, I pray that you would enable us to tangibly experience you through the power of your Holy Spirit within us. And then, Father, I pray that all of us would uh, be able to look forward to the day that our older brother, your son Jesus, is able to wrap his arms around us and uh, to tell us that he loves us. Father, I pray that you would uh, continue to be with us today as we worship you. I pray that you would send us out from this place this morning. Uh, in your nurture and in your admonition and in your strength. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.